I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 6, 2016. Coming up, today we will speak with Leonard David, a space journalist who has written a new book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Haven't we all had the experience of feeling the pain of a loved one? Researchers from the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland have shown that feeling is communicated by chemicals. They used three groups of mice. The first group received unpleasant or painful stimuli. The second group of bystander mice did not receive the treatment, but were housed in the same room as the first group. Control mice were not subjected to painful events and housed in a different room. Subsequently, subsequently sensitized to pain. The jargon term is hyperalgesia, meaning that you feel more pain from the same stimulus than if you weren't sensitized. Sensory nerve cells that carry pain signals to the central nervous system were activated in the bystander mice to sensitize them. This activation was mediated by olfactory cues from the first group of mice who had received the initial painful stimuli. Just the air from the cages of herding mice could cause hyperalgesia in the bystanders. And in case you were wondering if it was just because the mice were related, the bystanders could be either familiar or unfamiliar mice. The same sensitization occurred. Furthermore, all three groups, including the controls, had the same levels of background anxiety and cortisol in their blood, meaning the pain group did not have a higher level of anxiety, which might have contributed to sensitization in the bystanders. These experiments illustrate the complex nature of pain and also highlight the need for proper consideration of how experimental animals are housed and tested. This work was published in the journal Science Advances last month. Our human penchant for plants, vegetables that is, goes way back to our prehistoric human ancestors. In fact, at least 780,000 years ago, according to a new study. Researchers studying a Stone Age archaeological site in Israel's northern Jordan Valley found botanical remains of 55 food plant species, including edible fruits and seeds. These plants mostly likely, most likely com- complemented a diet of animals. The findings suggest a diet that was more varied than many researchers had thought. They also suggest that humans used fire to process food. The site in Israel is where scientists have in recent years discovered the earliest evidence of human-controlled fire in Western Asia. Not many remains of Paleolithic plants have been found around the world. So this unique discovery by researchers from Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Bar Ilan University sheds new light on our paleo diet well before paleo became a fad. The findings show that a vegetable-rich diet of humans from early to mid-Pleistocene is central to our understanding of how hominids evolved, adapted, and exploited their environment. This paper was published yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And for this week's science calendar, black holes are locations of intense gravity, Through though they have a large importance in our galaxy and universe, but we can't see into these magnificent structures to find what lies within. 
Thus, black holes are probably the most enigmatic astrophysical objects ever discovered. If you've ever wanted to learn more about black holes, then you will want to visit the Fisk Planetarium this weekend. On Saturday, December 10th at 9 p.m., the Fisk Planetarium is showing black holes, the other side of infinity. This planetarium show, developed with the help of CU astrophysicist Andrew Hamilton, shows new visualization of black holes that capture the actual physics of what happens in one. More details can be found at the Fisk Planetarium website. Also on the science calendar, Café Scientifique Boulder will meet next Monday night, December 12th, for a talk called Technological Fixes for Climate Change, Shall We Turn the Planet into a Laboratory? The speaker will be Jack Stilgo, a senior lecturer at the University College London in the Department of Science and Technology Studies. He's currently on sabbatical at CU Boulder. Dr. Stilgo will explore how, given that nations have not made enough progress in curbing greenhouse gas emissions, some engineers and scientists have suggested a massive technological approach. Some call it geoengineering, essentially hacking the Earth's climate system to cool the planet. Dr. Stilgo will talk about how these various technologies work, who would or should govern them, and what the ecological and societal impacts would be. The Café Side Talk starts at 6 o'clock next Monday night at Bohemian Beer Garden. It's at 2017 13th Street, downtown. Refreshments start at 5.30. For more information, go to www.cafécyboulder.wordpress.com. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. Over the last five decades, some 20 spacecraft have been sent to Mars, including orbiters and landers. These robotic missions have provided unprecedented insights into this alien world. Now, both NASA and private companies are making plans to send humans to the Red Planet. Space journalist Leonard David has written a new book about these endeavors. The book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet, is a companion to a six-part television series from executive producers Brian Grazer and Ron Howard that premiered on the National Geographic Channel on November 14th and is still airing weekly. Mr. David joins us in the studio to talk about this new era of human exploration. Leonard David, welcome to KGNU. Mr. David, are you there? Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Well, yeah. Welcome to KGNU. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. So, um, for the past 20, past 20 years as a planetary scientist, and before that as a child, I've heard many people claim that humans would soon visit and live on Mars. It's something I've been excited about for a very long time, and yet it keeps getting pushed back into the future. And sort of once again, leaders of industry and government are talking about the human exploration of Mars. So based on what you learned while writing this book, should I have real hope this time that it might finally actually happen? Well, I think you should. Uh, I just turned 70, and I'm, I'm like you. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But I do think we are at a technological readiness state, uh, not only NASA and the U.S., but also other countries. So, you know, would it be a global enterprise that would 
undertake a humans to Mars mission, um, and maybe the private sector with Elon Musk and some of the other entrepreneurs that are uh, have space in their veins. Uh, uh, you know, it's hard to say how it's all going to come together, but I think we're closer to Mars than uh, we've ever been. And so you hit on something. Um, I think for the first time there are new groups sort of getting involved. Um, it's not just NASA and maybe even uh, the European Space Agency that uh, are showing interest, but we have uh, commercial interests like Elon Musk. But are there others out there that maybe most of our listeners haven't heard about that are uh, making uh, – taking active steps to explore Mars with humans? Well, Elon certainly, you know, has an agenda that he's discussed and outlined from his company, SpaceX. I'd keep an eye on on other groups, uh, particularly Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon.com founder and billionaire. Uh, he's got his own space activities going. Uh, there's also Sir Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic, and he's uh, developing a suborbital capability for tourism. But some of these folks, uh, they're going to evolve to orbital capability. And I, I kind of look at these private ventures as training ground for people to actually have space flight under their belt. You know, so I. I look at it as, uh, you know, kind of an opportunity to get more people interested in space and then, you know, actually participating in space flight. So um, there's just a lot. And then there's another uh, interesting character in this story, uh, Robert Bigelow out in in, uh, Las Vegas. He's a hotel magnet. He's made lots of money, but he's also investing in space structures, inflatable structures, that could be the future habitats on the moon or Mars. So, yeah, you're right. I, I think there's a, a wave action going here in the private sector about space uh, exploration. So I'm encouraged by that, not only just the government uh, taking these kind of things on. So in mentioning Bigelow and the fact that he's focused on his habitats, it brings up uh, one of the interesting things that you talk about in your book, um, which is... Uh, actually living and surviving on the planet. Uh, for the longest time, I've, I've found that people often sort of um, make a comparison with exploring Mars with what the, previ- uh, the uh, early settlers from uh, Europe had to deal with when coming to America. But, but that comparison always sort of fails because, you know, when the Westerners arrived, it was a habitable, hospitable land already occupied by humans. When humans arrive at Mars, it's going to be an uninhabited, inhospitable world devoid of any signs of life. So those those first crews of human beings who arrive on Mars, what's life going to be like for them? Well, it's going to be stark and, and desolate, and I, I think initially that's the way it's going to you know, be with modules that very much like the space station modules you see. But I think one of the big differences here, the resources on, on, on the red planet, can provide some kind of construction capability. You can actually start thinking about ice houses. I mean, the, uh, there's some re- relatively recent discovery of uh, underground ice pockets on Mars, and, and it, perhaps that can be used for oxygen and fuel and transforming that, and also for construction. Uh, one thing I, I disagree with you, it, I think there is life on Mars, and I think one of the obligations we're going to have in the future is protecting that life and having a better understanding of what that 
uh, life is like on that red planet. And then you get into ethics and uh, a lot of other... I was listening earlier to your uh, opening about uh, geoengineering. Uh, there are people that are looking at Mars and how do you fool with the thermostat on Mars and change it to an Earth-like uh, planet. And if there's life there, what right do we have to do that? And that's I try to write that in the book. I, I try to go in between a bunch of experts but I think it's something that we're going to face in the near term. So that brings up an interesting point. Um, ultimately, there are many people who would like to see Mars colonized and and people living there long term. But what you bring up is that uh, the early explorers of Mars might have a completely different uh, goal. Uh, for example, if if you if there really is life there. Is possibly the first goal of human exploration actually to go out and find it, sort of cordon it off, and figure out um, how to handle those ethical and scientific challenges that you mentioned? I think that's a driver. I mean, you know, you talk about the centuries of looking at Mars and wondering, is there life on the red planet? I mean, back in the 19, early 1900s, I mean, Percival Lowell had canals going all over the place and some of his telescopic observations. And, you know, people thought people were on, on, the, on Mars. And the more clarity we got over the decades with spacecraft, I think we're starting to know that planet a lot better. But my guess is the, the search for life will continue, and, and how we go about it, uh, I think, is very important to even the larger issue beyond Mars. I think it's a testing ground for ethics and how we go about looking for other uh, life in another world, and whether or not that's going to give us some leg up for uh, exploration in other places, uh, whether it's uh, Titan, Enceladus, I mean, some of these moons of different planets, pretty exciting things. There is even some new speculation about Pluto. Is it a, is it a harbor of life? So, um, you know, I, I just think Mars is a kind of a metaphor for a lot of things, and one of them is going to be how best to look for life and not disturb it and maybe have it uh, also not hurt us, because <laughs> it could be something... Uh, second genesis of life on Mars, and who knows what that could do to our our bio, uh, biology and biosphere if we bring some samples back, that kind of thing. So, um, open-ended question, but that's why we explore. You're tuned to the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Alejandro Soto, and my guest is Leonard David, author of the book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet. So I want to just continue a little bit more with the question of life and exploration, Um so possibly what we need to consider then maybe is the ethical challenges now. Uh, should we maybe uh, focus mostly on robotic exploration until we determine this, the existence of life or not before we allow ourselves to send humans to Mars? Well, you know, if you go back and think about the early uh, spacecraft, I think you started right off how many uh, you know decades of exploration of Mars has, have been underway with robotic craft. We got a one-ton rover running around on Mars right now, a smaller one in another area of Mars. And but in the 70s, they had the Viking uh, program that had two landers, and this is 76. 1976, and, and they were built to ask and answer, is there life on Mars? And as I say in the book, I think it did relay a pretty good answer, which is, can you repeat the question? 
there was some, there's still to this day, one of the Viking experimenters claims his, his experiment found life. Uh, but it's a controversial call, and uh, there, it's still debatable about what his particular experiment found. Um, but it does show, the, in some ways, the inadequacies of what we've sent so far to look for life um, on Mars. And, I, I think I, and the bottom line is I think it's going to take a human and robotic capability uh, in, in tow with each other on Mars to really decipher what's happening on that planet. Well, regardless of which way we go, one of the things I liked about your book is that you actually highlighted the many people who have been involved in past Mars exploration and future Mars, Martian exploration. And uh, you call them heroes, and you, you have little sections on them scattered throughout the book. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about about who these heroes are and what drives them. Well, it's, you know, if you, thank you for that. I, the, the point of the book, is to kind of portray people that have actually done quite a bit of uh, activity over the decades. And it wasn't a point to make them scientists or engineers, astrobiologists is in there, but also some policymakers, John Logsdon at George Washington University, people who have pioneered uh, different kinds of uh, uh, space activity, including space policy. So what I was trying to get in those profiles was that this is not often some far future that people are thinking about human exploration of Mars. There's a lot of talented people right now working on how to make uh, a program sustainable and successful. And uh, the big difference would be survive on Mars, but also thrive there. How do you sustain a capability on Mars? Um, I try to avoid the flags and footprints problem where you go Apollo-esque and you kind of jump off the lander, plant a flag, salute it, grab some rocks, and come back home. Uh, Are we going to have the wherewithal for long-term sustainable exploration on on, on Mars? Quite different type of approach than we did with Apollo. And I think one of the exciting things is that it's a larger community globally getting involved in these type of questions and trying to tackle them than has been seen in previous decades. It's not just Americans and the Europeans. Who else is starting to get uh, involved and, and make serious moves into Mars exploration? Well, right now, India has an orbiter circling Mars. Uh, they're actually planning an, um, another orbiter. Uh, the United uh, UAE, uh, Emirates, uh, that group is also doing an orbiter that they want to launch in 2021. Uh, China is working very hard on a a rover to land on on Mars in the 2022 time frame. Uh, So, yeah, I I look at it as a global uh, undertaking. It used to be a big deal if you launched a satellite and you could claim you're in the space club and now everybody's launching satellites, so I think another opportunity here is Mars is a very hard place to explore, and you can get your one-upmanship by uh, getting to Mars and with an orbiter or a lander. So, uh, but there's the bottom line is there's multiple nations, uh, and I think that may be the template um, for uh, you know a human exploration program, all this capability by multiple nations going together to share costs, share technology, and share the glory. 
So in your research, did you find that these uh, different nations are starting to coordinate their uh, exploration and their future plans? Uh, not really. <laughs> you know, we've got some problems here in the U.S. working with China. Uh, I think China is one of the biggest stories uh, this year. They, a lot of different capability was demonstrated uh, by China. And uh, I, I just did a piece for Scientific American, uh, and I, I, I kind of think of it, I'm getting old here, but uh, the Sputnik moment, you know, when the Soviet Union and the Russians, you know, launched Sputnik 1, that was a shock. And I think the Chinese have something similar going on in their space program that will allow them to glue together a lot of pieces that we see in piecemeal. But it, when they glue it together, they're going to have quite a capability. So, But there is a need for an international coordination of, um, of countries uh, that are interested in, in Mars exploration. And uh, the Europeans um, have overtures to China and a lot of other nations. And uh, We'll see how it how it plays out, but I, at this moment, no, I think we're not totally uh, coordinated because I mean, there's money involved, and why send the sen- same sensor to Mars and do the same kind of measurements? Maybe we need to better coordinate that. That's my view. So, better coordination amongst governments. Um, do you see any signs of coordination between the? Uh, commercial interests like Musk and Bezos and uh, government activities? Uh, actually, uh, NASA is very interested in working with Elon Musk and uh, because Musk has made overtures about uh, colonization of Mars. He wants to use his uh, spacecraft, the Dragon spacecraft that he's uh, designed for use by NASA at the moment. But he wants to uh, start lobbying the, those uh, kind of craft robotically, you know, would have no people on him initially, but he's got a grander scheme, you know, putting people on Mars. And NASA has has got a kind of an agreement with uh, Musk right now because some of the hardware and some of the technology that he's using is exactly what NASA is interested in. How do you get heavier and heavier uh, uh, payloads on Mars? I mean, right now the, the, the biggest thing we've landed on Mars was that one-ton Curiosity rover back in August of 2012. So uh, NASA is very interested in some of the ideas that Musk has. So there is beginning to be a, uh, a cooperative uh, adventure between NASA and, and Musk for that on that particular program. So when Musk talks about um, putting a, a Dragon capsule on Mars in the next 10 years, uh, you see that as a real possibility? I think so. I think, uh, on the other hand, Musk has problems. I mean, it's not a slam dunk for him either. Uh, he's going to get back in the air here, I think, December 16th or something coming up for another launch. The last, uh, he had an on-the-pad explosion of his uh, Falcon rocket. And uh, so we'll have to see how he does on the next flight and the, all the flights after that. So it's a, uh, uh, but, but he's, you know, he's an interesting character, and uh, he's got the vision, and he's got the wherewithal, uh, but he also needs to get a lot of successes under his belt before he heads off to Mars. Well, it's all very exciting. Uh, I hope that this time around it, it is more likely that we will move forward with some great exploration in the future. And I've got to thank you for uh, putting out uh, a beautiful book uh, talking about the future possibilities for human exploration on Mars. Thank well, you very thank much. thank you. So that was 
Leonard David, a space journalist and author of the just-published book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. I also produced and engineered this week's show. Additional contributions by Alejandro Soto. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from uh, Supreme Beings of Love. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro.